Well, I'm excited to preach. It is going to be a part two as Jamaica brought up. Uh, I don't think you can talk about the Holy Spirit one time. Like, <laughs> the message was called Put Some Respect on My Name, and how can I do that if I only talk about Him once? And the Holy Spirit, I feel like I'm going to talk about it again. Understanding the work of the Holy Spirit might be the most important thing for us as believers. I think we kind of understand going to church. We kind of understand we're supposed to read our Bible. We understand prayer, but the Holy Spirit is the engine of the church. It would kind of be like if you bought a brand new car and you went to go start it and it didn't start because it had no engine. I guess you could call it a car, but it's not a very useful one without something to move it forward. So the Holy Spirit moves our lives forward. The Holy Spirit moves our relationship with Jesus forward. Without the Holy Spirit, it's actually impossible to follow and have a relationship with God. Matter of fact, the Bible would suggest that people in the Old Testament lived in the wrong time. I don't know if you understand this, but many of us would have just just kill. We would pay to be in the moment where uh, Israel was escaping Egypt and God used Moses to part the Red Sea. You ever see those Old Testament stories? I wonder what it would be like to make uh, to be there when David uh, took out Goliath with one stone and a slingshot. They make movies about what happened in the Old Testament, but I've never seen a movie about somebody being just filled with the Holy Spirit. It's almost like that that wouldn't make for good cinema. That's not good entertainment. And so even they make films out of the parts of the Bible that are entertaining, but the part that's powerful, we try to figure it out. And I want to tell you something that Moses if I can say this, doesn't have what you have. Elijah doesn't have what you have. Daniel did not have what you have. They were never filled with the Holy Spirit and through faith in Jesus, we can. And I believe without this foundation, we become a weak and powerless church. And the church rising up is rising up. Uh, that song, uh, by your spirit I will rise. Uh, the church rising up is not shouting things to our friends on Instagram and ridiculing other people. That's the church. That's not rising up. We rise by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we rise. And so if it's not the Holy Spirit helping us rise, that's not rising. That's yelling and ridiculing. It's not rising. Ah, man, I I gotta read. I I can't. I gotta keep going. All right. So I'm gonna preach a message. Part two of the Holy Spirit simply titled, I'm new here. I'm new here. I'm new here. When Christina and I took over the church, that's what we kind of wanted to say. I'm new here. Just new to all this lead pastoring stuff, right? You ever come to church and someone yells a word that you don't know? Somebody shout glory and you just go glory and you go to your neighbor. What does glory mean? All these church words, sanctification and salvation and repentance. And you can kind of be overwhelmed when you don't understand something. And so this message is simply for the people who would honestly say, I'm new here. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've been following Jesus since I was three. People always say that. I've been following Jesus since I was one and a half. Like, all right, okay. I baptized myself. Like, went went in the bathtub when I was nine months old. And just like kept going. But this message is for you too. I think we should always be living out our Christianity like I'm new here. I think... The Holy Spirit is often restricted by people who 
are just too familiar. Jesus in the Bible actually was restricted by people who were too familiar and he was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Familiar means that you are more familiar than you have faith. And Jesus said, there's a scripture that is terrifying to me, that Jesus could not do many miracles in that town because they didn't believe. It doesn't say that he would not. It says that he couldn't. The lack of faith restrained the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit is activated by our faith, not our desires, by our faith. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. So without the word of God, you cannot have faith. And without faith, the Holy Spirit is deactivated, deactivated. The Holy Spirit was deactivated in Jesus when there was no faith. So my job as, as your pastor and your leader is to build a foundation in your life of faith. Because when there is faith, the Holy Spirit gets activated in your life. And when the Holy Spirit is activated, Activated, the enemy is deactivated and we get to walk into the promises of God on our life. I already feel like preaching and I'm just getting started. I'm new here. I'm new here. I don't want to be familiar. I want to be new here. I'm new here. You know why you can say we're new here? Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that we, you and I are citizens of heaven. So every time you walk around on earth, you should feel out of place. I, I totally disagree with us trying to find our place in the church, trying to find our place. The Bible has, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit has designed you when you were newly created in Christ to feel out of place on earth. And the world wants you to find your spot in the entertainment industry, find your spot on the corporate ladder, find your spot here, find your spot there. But we are citizens of heaven. Every single time you walk around Los Angeles, I don't care where you are at. I don't care if you're right here in Koreatown. I don't care if you're in downtown LA. I don't care if you're in the valley where it's super hot and it's 15 degrees hotter than the rest of Los Angeles, but the rent is cheaper. I don't care where you are at. You should be saying, I am new here because my home is heaven. That's my home. I'm an ambassador of Christ, the Bible calls us, which means every single time you are waking up in the morning, you are a visitor. Your dwelling place is the kingdom of heaven. So this is how we need to live. Acts chapter 15 tells a story about how uh, some people were new to the church and the Holy Spirit had to combine uh, the people who had been around a while and the new people. It's one of the hardest ways to do church where you got some people who have had some faith for a while and you got some new people coming into the church. Most churches are filled with the old saints. I'm talking about the old saints. No new people at all. And they just got the old saints, been believing for a long time. Or other churches are filled with a lot of young people that really believe that Jesus loves them, but they really don't understand or know anything else. And when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people in Acts chapter 2, it says that the old men will dream dreams and the young people will have vision. So a Holy Spirit-filled church got some old people and some young people. Some old people that know a lot but maybe need to know more, and some young people that don't know nothing, but they want to learn more. So what happens is the first thing that the, Holy, the, the enemy has to do to the church, it, and we think that he wants to divide us politically. Watch this. Oh, I feel like preaching. We think he wants to divide us politically. But did you know, even in the last election, that Donald Trump, won every single category of every single voter, black people included, in 2016 in voters over 50. 
And the Democratic Party won every single person in voters under 50. So when we think that they're trying to gen uh, uh, politically divide us, we're being generationally divided. The generations are not coming together to build the house of God. This was a gospel of generations. When our faith first started, God promised Abraham that generations would come out of the seed of Sarah. And so the enemy is trying to break God's promise to Abraham by dividing the generations. He doesn't want old people and young people to get together with seasoned wisdom. Matter of fact, it says that we are yoked together and they would put an old ox and a young ox in something called a yoke and they would plow the field. Experience and youth and vision and strength combining together to build a foundation for God's house. Even in the book of Ezra, when they were building the foundation, when God said, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, the Bible says that the old people who saw the way it was before were weeping, and the new people who never saw the old temple were rejoicing, and you could hear the sounds of the weeping and rejoicing in the same service. So when we're trying to combine different mindsets and different generations and different walks of life and this person's from Beverly Hills and this person is from the streets of San Bernardino, how do we combine this community when we come into it with such different backgrounds? The only way is the Holy Spirit. And this is the problem that they were trying to solve in Acts chapter 15. And it was a big problem. Because the Jewish believers were devout. They followed all the rules. The Gentile believers, which was pretty much people from Rome and Greece, none of these people were from Israel. These people were lit. I mean, they were all the way turned up. And God gave them the same Holy Spirit and it shut down Israel's rejection of them because they only needed one thing in common. They all had the Holy Spirit. So to be a church, we don't need to agree on everything. We don't need to agree on politics. We don't need to agree on race. We don't need to agree on everything. We should have conversations about everything in a healthy way. But the only thing we need, the only qualification that they had, I, you got to get this. Peter and these guys did not hang out with anybody that wasn't Jewish. Never. They weren't allowed to eat with them. They weren't allowed to talk with them. Jesus even said he came for the lost sheep of Israel. So when we say that Jesus walked around loving and ministering to everybody, that is not true. He came for the lost sheep of Israel and then everyone who wasn't from Israel got let in because the love and the grace of God was almost too expansive for just Israel. It had to be for everyone. And so these People aren't getting along, and I'm kind of giving you the background from Acts chapter 15, and they come, and Peter has lunch with a guy named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and, and the Jewish leaders, or the Israel leaders are giving them a hard time. Why did you eat with these people? We, for hundreds of years, we have, not, we have not been allowed to associate with these people, and Peter gave them one answer. They got the Holy Spirit just like we did. And then they went, oh, cool. So one of the biggest evidences that you have the Holy Spirit is that you start hanging out with people that you never, you ignored before. 
That's, that's one of the evidence. If you're not, if you're still with the cool people and you're not with the homeless and the forgotten and the forsaken and the person who might have stayed up all night at the club, but if you're not hanging out with people you wouldn't normally hang out with, if you're not loving people that it's normally hard for you to love, if you're not having compassion on people you used to not have compassion for, if you're not forgiving people that you used to not forgive, you don't have the Holy Spirit. It makes you connected with people that you used to reject, you now connect with. They got the Holy Spirit just like we do. And so then the Israelite leaders, the Jewish leaders went, well, what about all the rules? What about the 600 Levitical laws we've been following? And we're going to pick up from Acts chapter 15, verse 6, when they're trying to solve this problem. It says, so the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirms that he accepts, watch that word, he confirms that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. God's love accepts us because we believe. God's love accepted. I want you to catch this. He said, I'm proving that I accept you by giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm accepting you. I'm accepting you. The verse does not say I'm affirming you. The verse says I'm accepting you. And the Holy Spirit was helping them know the difference between acceptance and affirmation. God accepts us because of what we believe. He does not affirm us for what we do. He accepts us. Here's the difference. Accept means this. To receive, grant access to a visitor not to refuse contact or friendship. Wow. That's what it means in the Greek. To receive, grant access to, that wow had harmonies to it. Like, I think you were one octave up, Amy. My wife was like, it's amazing. So, at Oasis Church, as God is, we are accepting. We receive you. And receive is a strong spiritual word. It means like up close. Receive isn't like y'all can sort of there. No, receive is the way that you reach out and, and receive a gift with gratitude in your heart. So no matter how you are living your life, if you've never followed one scripture in the Bible, you are accepted at Oasis. We receive you like a gift that you are a gift from heaven. We receive you, but we also grant access to you. So, so if you weren't following all of God's ways, that meant restricted access. So God's acceptance means I'm not going to restrict your access to me. This is God. He's not going to restrict your access to him based off the rules that you follow. He accepts you. He also doesn't refuse contact. He wants to be close. The Bible says that Jesus would reach out and touch lepers and nobody would touch these close proximity. And he also wants to be your friend. The Bible says Jesus had a reputation for being a friend of sinners. So what is acceptance? We're friends no matter where you've been. Oh, that rhymes. I love it when it rhymes. I would never refuse contact. You have access and I receive you like the gift that you are. 
Well, what is the Greek word for affirmation? To affirm means to elevate one view over another. So here is what the Holy Spirit had to solve in this context. The Gentiles were living their life the complete opposite of God's word. They were having sex with who they wanted to have the sex with. Their sexuality was all over the place compared to what the, the Jews were living their life. And these people loved these people so much. They were trying to figure out, how do we accept you without affirming you? Watch this. Accepting you is, how do I be your friend? How do I embrace you? How do I receive you? How do I grant you access to all the things that we have without elevating your view over the word of God? Because affirming is I'm elevating what you think over what God says. And in culture, what God's word says is not relevant to affirmation. And so watch this, write this down. God's love accepts us because we believe the world's love says affirm what I do or you don't love me. No, no, no. I adore my kids. I rarely affirm my kids. Rarely. Meaning I rarely elevate what they think over what's right. I accept them. I receive them. I love them. But when the alarm clock goes off at 6.30 and they want to sleep till 7.30 and school is at 8, I do not affirm them sleeping till 7.30. Why? Because they're going to miss out on school if I affirm. And so if, if I'm not careful as a leader and a pastor, I can affirm something in your life that will have you late for what God has for you. And so how do I accept you Without affirming, now affirming, I'm not talking about the worldly version of affirming because the worldly version of affirming is love. The biblical word of affirming is to elevate one view over another. So here is the, the dichotomy. Ooh, I love that word. Come on, two weeks in junior college using words like dichotomy. I got my 1250 a unit, got my money's worth. This is the predicament, the conundrum. Every pastor, every leader, every Christian that deeply loves people is how do I accept you? But realizing I don't have the authority to affirm you. That's not my authority. God has to do. I can't elevate what you think over the word of God. I can't do that. So how do I accept you? How do we accept our children? How do we teach them what? What is right and wrong? And when I say I don't affirm my kids, yes, I affirm my kids, but I'm saying most of what parenting is is teaching your kids that what they're about to do, the exact opposite is what they should be doing. That's most of parenting. I, oh, oh, no, 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 don't, yeah, no, eh, no, hey, what, hey, hey, uh, did you just chop? My son chopped his sister in the throat when Christina was out of town. I can't go, wow, that knife edge chopped to the Adam's apple. Son, that was amazing. I can't do that. Don't chop your sister in the throat. And can you imagine him going, I just don't feel affirmed. Yeah, but you're accepted. I like you're my son. I receive you like you didn't chop her. But I can't affirm the chop to make you feel loved. And so this is what the Holy Spirit had to help them do. And they wanted it so bad, they were willing to meet about it for hours instead of putting it on a website. They were willing to go, we got to talk about this because we want these people in our community so bad 
that we're not just gonna put it in our bylaws as a church. We're not just gonna put a public statement out there. We're not gonna put a post on Instagram. We're gonna have hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of meetings to figure out how do we get these people in our community. This is a difficult thing. I want you to write this down. The Holy Spirit has to lead the conversation on how to involve people in the church who believe but are learning to obey. The Holy Spirit has to be involved in that conversation. Holy Spirit was leading. And I'm telling you, you know no one. I know you think you got some wild friends. These, a lot of these people were from Greece and Rome. It was going down. Think about, if you're, if you're an old black person, think about Freak Nick in Atlanta. If you're a southern white person, think about, uh, what's the thing, Mardi Gras. And think about every college party in any Cal State school. Combine all those three things together, Greek culture. It was lit. And so they were in, in a bit of a situation. So here's what the Holy Spirit did. It made them to have a conversation that they hadn't planned on having. I think as a church, if we're loving people, we have to have conversations we weren't planning on having. We like to have it easy where everybody believes the same thing. We gotta talk about things that we weren't planning on talking about. And the Holy Spirit has to lead these conversations. And here is in verse nine, I want you to get a, a, an important part. I know these people were filled with the Holy Spirit because most of these people had been raised in the faith. They would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And here's the revelation that the Holy Spirit gave them between themselves, devout, religious, faithful people, and the most lit culture ever. And this is the revelation that I don't see on Instagram. This is the revelation that I don't see on posts. This is a revelation that I don't see when people are like, we gotta be the truth and we gotta rise in the truth. Verse nine, God has made no distinction between us and them. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. They dirty as I don't know what, but their hearts is clean though. God had to start there. I'm a pastor. I preach the word. I've been following God for whatever. Imagine you're 65 years old. You've been following God since you were five, 60 years. And what the Holy Spirit has to say is that there's no distinction between you and this guy that's fresh out of the club smelling like weed, that there's no distinction. So my service of the Lord for 40 years doesn't mean that God looks at me differently than the guy who's never served God. Think about Jesus' final act of grace was letting um, a criminal into heaven. All this criminal did was say, hey, he didn't do anything wrong. We did, we deserve this, he doesn't. And then he had the audacity to turn to Jesus and say, will you remember me? And Jesus said, truly this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know, we think that word paradise means heaven, but it doesn't. There was no other time where that word is used. That word paradise is translated garden. You know what Jesus told that man? Oh my God. He told that man, the way I was with Adam in the garden, that intimacy, truly this day you'll be with me. He didn't just say you get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, you barely got in. He said, that one act that you did, the garden is open for you. Jesus' death, remember when Adam and Eve sinned, it closed the garden, the place of intimacy and reception. 
And when Jesus died, the garden was open even to the criminal. But notice Jesus didn't say, and I affirm every single crime you've ever committed against the Lord. He just said, no, I accept you. I accept you. And the tough thing about that is somebody watching that moment, let's say they didn't run from Jesus. Let's say they were willing to die for their faith. The Bible says that God would make no distinction between that criminal and anyone else. And I feel like one of the biggest issues or one of the biggest things where I feel like the Holy Spirit is not in the church is when I watch the church make distinctions. Oh man, this person, man, he's, guy's no good. When we say someone's no good, when we judge someone else, that's only by comparison. That means we think we're better. That's a tough verse. We actually cannot be led by the Holy Spirit when we're making distinctions. When we're saying someone else is this and we're this, the Holy Spirit has no distinction. That is a really difficult verse. Peter, when he had a vision of Cornelius, and Cornelius was again a Gentile person, never really lived a life of faith. He was praying, obviously, and giving. Peter in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 said, when God gave him the revelation, I, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. The original verse is God's not a respecter of persons. That word is translated that God does not acknowledge the face. Can I just, I might have to go a little longer. That word that God does not show favoritism, not a respecter of persons, means that he's not accepting of the face. So he doesn't, he looks at us collectively once we believe. He looks at us as a body. That's why it says that we are the body of Christ beholding the face of Jesus. God's not a respecter. He's not an acceptor of the face. So he doesn't look at Julian's face and go because he's a pastor and look at a criminal's face because he's a criminal and go, yes, Julian, him, not you, him. He doesn't know the difference. He's not an acceptor of the face. He's only acceptor of the faith that each of those individual has. So if what I'm doing on the surface is for my own notoriety so I can close a book deal and what that person is doing, even though they're in sin, the little thing that they're doing is by faith, God accepts him and rejects me. Outwardly, it looks like I'm the one who's going to heaven, but inwardly, I might stand before God on judgment day with a church that I built for myself that was my platform and not my kingdom. I'm telling you right now, God is not a respecter. He's not an acceptor of the face. And so the moment you believe you're in, what qualifies you in the kingdom is your faith, not your function. That's why God always calls dysfunctional people with faith so he can show the world that it was him the entire time. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says, he doesn't make a distinction. He doesn't make a distinction. There's no difference. So verse 10 says, so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear. Because these religious leaders were trying to tell them all the rules. I want you to read that sentence. Why are you challenging God by burdening these believers with rules that we couldn't even do? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. 
Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. That word conversion is a spiritual term for when you put your faith in Jesus. You are converted. You are moving from one thing to another. You're just not acknowledging that Jesus is real. You're not moving from atheism to belief. There's a conversion that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the word conversion means you are experiencing a moral revolution, a return to oneself, to move from one worship, worshiping one thing to another, a moral revolution. The Holy Spirit, when it fills the believer, creates a moral revolution. Relationship with Jesus does not mean that it changes the accountability. A relationship is a moral revolution. Religion is a moral evolution. What's the difference? Speed. If you're doing it on your own, it's slow. One rule at a time, one law at a time. A revolution is quick, fast. And that doesn't mean you're perfect. I'm just talking about when you get saved, a revolution is taking. Revolution is rebellion. Now you're not rebelling against God. You're rebelling against your flesh. The war, the enmity with God, the war with God is done. And now the war becomes between the Holy Spirit and you. That's why it feels at first like you got the peace of God, but it feels like a fight. It was always a fight. It was a fight with you and God. Now it's a fight between the Holy Spirit and your flesh. What you want to do and what he wants to do. I live that fight every single day. In the spirit, I'm lumped up, black eyed, beat up, tripped up, fat lip. But there's a, a moral revolution. That's a conversion. Moral revolution. A return to oneself. So, so conversion, when you put your faith in Jesus, what the Holy Spirit does is he does not make you who God wants you to be. He makes you who you were always meant to be. It has nothing to do with pleasing God. You were created to be that way. And here's the thing about creation. This microphone in my hand, right? We all know what it is. We've seen it be used before. But if this was 100 years ago, and someone invented this microphone and set it on the ground, do you know that it would never, ever, ever enhance sound if you found it? Because think about this, picking up this microphone 100 years ago, what would you do with it? How would you know that it would hook up to this receiver and hook up to that soundboard? And if you hook the speaker up to it, you would never know. So one of the greatest inventions of all time would be useless unless you discovered who created it and asked them some questions. And then once you discover its creator, now you know what it's used for. So a relationship with Jesus is about discovering your creator so you can discover your purpose and then you can do your purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's literally what it is. It is returning to your original creation, the thing that God had planned for you all along. It says this conversion 
this moral revolution, this return to who you were supposed to be, this move from worshiping one thing to another, this was prophesied. And it says, afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David that represents God's house, God's people. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. One of the things I'm thinking about that may be why we had to go through this tough season and and rebuild in strength is because that when we do, watch verse 17, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I've called to be mine. The world is watching us rebuild. And the world is watching, do we rebuild by not letting certain people rebuild with us? Do we make distinctions between us and other people? It says the world is watching how we rebuild. And I want you to rebuild the church. Oasis, hear me. I want you to rebuild. This is God. I want you to rebuild Oasis so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord. I think if we exclude people from helping us rebuild because we don't know the line between acceptance and affirmation, then the rest of humanity won't seek the Lord. It's the purpose of God that we would have to rebuild in this season. And so verse 19 says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Please write this down. Making disciples doesn't mean you have to make it difficult. We're doing a Bible study at 4 a.m. I got to know you really want it. I'm not going to be there. You're making it difficult for me. Put the Bible study, what time do you have open? What time are you available? I'll come on your lunch break. I'll sit in the parking lot. The goal of us trying to disciple people who are new to God, if they're new here, we want to make it as easy as possible. I think so many times we think it doesn't have any value if it's not hard. So we make it hard. Y'all are making it hard. That's what Peter said. You're making it hard. So the goal is the lack of difficulty. But what about all the sins? Let's not make it hard. Let's not make it hard. So what are we going to do about all the rules they're not following? You know what they said? We should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols. That's the first thing. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I get, can I just pause here for a second? 600 something laws. I mean, these people are having sex with each other. If there's drugs, they're taking them. They're like, it's lit. Let's tell them not to eat that stuff. What? Why are you dealing with their diet? Why are you dealing with their diet? And not their debauchery. Because if they ate that stuff, the Israelites couldn't eat with them. So they dealt with the thing that would keep them from having community. (sighs) Okay, you got a lot of sin in your life. What do we deal with first? The thing that would keep us from sharing a meal at the dinner table. I can't eat that, and you do, so don't eat that so I can eat with you. The first thing I'm going to deal with is the thing that prevents us from being intimate 
at home, taking communion together, eating together, being in community. I got to deal with the thing that prevents me from coming to your house. Not from you coming to church or preaching on a platform or leading worship. I got to deal with the thing that prevents me. I mean, these people were living in complete sin and I got to deal with the thing. I can't eat that. And because I can't eat that, I can't eat with you. And I just want to eat with you. So let me tell you first, will you be willing to not eat that so I can eat with you? I mean, I'm talking about debauchery, y'all. Because you know what the next thing is? Oh, and sexual immorality. And by the way, that word sexual immorality is translated prostitution and adultery. Some of our sexual terms that we're using right now in our culture, they didn't know anything about that. So we kind of, you know, it means a lot of different things in today's culture, but they were like, I just want you to understand this. Hey, please don't eat blood uh, food sacrificed to idols because I really want to eat with you. And um, maybe no prostitutes. Maybe no, don't stop cheating on your wife. Can you do that? And the Gentiles are like, yeah, okay, cool. You, babe, you in luck today because the only way we can be a part of this community is if I stop, get rid of the side, you know what, the side chick. <laughs> Guess we're going to church next weekend. Oh, wait a minute, one more thing. Yeah, the prostitutes. But can you not eat the meat of strangled animals? You guys, they remembered one more thing that they were eating that they couldn't eat. So it's like, hey, don't eat that. We want to eat with you. Oh, yeah, no prostitutes and no cheating on your wife. Oh, yeah, oh, the blood from the strangling animals. We can't eat that either. We want to eat together. Yeah, don't prostitutes and we want to eat together. We want to be with you. Yeah, don't do that. We want to be with you. That was the order of the rules. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. That's probably one of the most important lines in there, verse 21, these laws of Moses, here's why. And I'm gonna close, this is so important. To the Jewish people, they were the laws of God. The Gentiles called them the laws of Moses. So they used the term that the Gentiles were using. For example, what we call traditional views of marriage and church are biblical views. They were calling the laws of God, the laws of Moses. So they're like, yeah, we get it. You call it the laws of Moses. We've been, these are the laws of Moses. These are the three that we got to stick to because they knew that a moral revolution was happening on the inside of them and they didn't need to rush the process to make themselves feel more comfortable. And I think if we're not careful, that's what we do in church. We're so uncomfortable with people's sin that we speed up the process to make us feel comfortable. But when someone is saved, they are in the process of a moral revolution. How do I know that it's working if I don't hold them accountable? You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, to those who are being saved, we are the aroma of Christ. For those who are perishing, we are the stench of death. So when a sinful person comes in the church and we are a pleasing aroma, that means they're in their process of their moral revolution. Maybe leave them alone. It's the one who says, I hate Christians. I hate the Bible. I hate, you gotta be worried about that person. That person at your job that hates you because of what you believe, you gotta be worried about that person. But the person who's living their life in complete sin that 
that wants to be loved by you, the, the Bible says they're in their process. Moral revolution. I want you to write this down. The Holy Spirit doesn't cancel the rules or the law. The Holy Spirit turns the rules into revelation. And it is that revelation that is life. The rules are death. Be very careful. The reason why they had to have hours and hours of conversations is because they had experienced the death, the spiritual death, the separation from God that the rules brought. But those same rules, that law is holy. And so if you sit with those rules that seem like rules to your flesh, that seems like rules to the rebellious part of you, that seems like rules to the disobedient part of you, if you sit with the rules long enough, the rules become revelation, revealing who God is. And rules are death, revelation is life. Rules are death, revelation is life. And I believe, and I can't prove it, but the three things these church leaders, one of the people who are, I'm just new here to deal with, two out of the three were the things that prevent them from having community because they knew at the dinner table there was a shot that the rules could become revelation. And they didn't want the people who say, I'm new here, to experience death from the rules when they could experience life from the revelation. This is the Holy Spirit. We have to be committed to people like they were committed to people in this story to have long conversations to make sure that the rules that bring death can become revelation that bring life. No, we don't get rid of the rules. We sit in God's presence with what we deem to be rules until rules become revelation and revelation becomes life and life becomes promises and blessing and community and love and hope and peace and faith and the life you were always meant to live. And only the Holy Spirit can do this. And so I feel like our church is in a bit of Acts chapter 15 moment where the Holy Spirit is going to help us make the rules revelation. Because churches to be accepting are getting rid of the rules. And we're doing damage to people's faith because we're not sitting with these rules in the Bible. There's some stuff I wish wasn't in here, but I really feel like I'm supposed to sit with you as a community. We're supposed to sit with the rules until they become revelation because revelation is life. God revealing himself through his word is life. So Father, we thank you that there are things in the Bible just like Acts chapter 15 that were rules to some and revelation to others and the rules do bring death but revelation brings life. So Holy Spirit, just like in Acts chapter 15, will you speak to us Will you guide us so that certain things, God, that you do that we don't understand that feel like restrictive rules are expansive revelation bringing freedom and blessing. Help us to always live our lives like we're new here. So these things in scripture that we don't understand can bring us together. And God, I pray this prayer that the number one things we would deal with in the lives of people who don't think like us, who don't obey like we obey, the number one things we would deal with are the things that prevent us from being together in loving community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.